Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Asbend, our daf of the day, Masachet Nedarim, daf Yud Bet, page 12. So there's a lot of different topics on page 12, believe it or not. Um, and although all of them, in one way or another, connected, of course, to these nedars and the different ways of one, the way one could incur a uh, prohibition upon oneself. So I want to look at uh, halfway through, these dapim are not that long. Um, or there's a lot of commentary that makes them longer if you're learning all the commentary. The text of the daf itself is not that long. I'm about maybe halfway down. It says, So the Gemara here is responding to the previous passage, of course. Um, but what I'm interested in is what follows, meaning what I've just read. What is the isur that is said in the Torah specifically about where do you have a vow of prohibiting a vow of prohibition. Let's say, Let's say somebody takes a vow and they say, I declare, again, I'm not saying this, quoting in theory, I declare that I will not eat meat and I will not drink wine today like the day that his father died. Meaning he's talking to the father of, about the father of the person who's making the vow, right? And that there is this practice. Some of you may know this practice. There's a practice to fast on the yard site of a parent, you know, for a parent. Um, it's also, a, you know, not, not, I don't know how widespread of a practice it is, but it is something that people do sometimes. Um, but the point being that one would take the vow saying, I will not drink wine today like that day that his father died. Now, this is really all coming in response to a discussion of whether you need to have an association for a nedr with a particular date or when that nedr has to be on that particular day. In this case, the point is that you can use the formula of of prohibiting some something from yourself, right? Swearing off something um, on the anniversary. It doesn't have to only be a reference to the thing on the day itself, for example. And then the Gemara goes on and gives another example. Kiyom shemait bo rabbo on the same day that his rabbi died, his rebbe, right, his teacher, um, the same way that you would mourn a parent, the position here is that you would mourn a teacher who's, who's your main teacher. It doesn't mean just somebody who, who taught you, but this is your rebbe, so to speak. Um, okay. And then the Gemara goes on and provides, I think, some quite interesting examples. Like the day that Gedalia, the son of Achikam, was killed, meaning that's Som Gedalia, that we have the day after Rosh Hashanah, right? And if you were to swear off food and drink, right, and you say, like the day that he was killed, um, then again, this this kind of oath should take effect. Like the day that I saw Jerusalem in its destruction. Of course, this is a very difficult kind of phrasing for us nowadays, because we re- we are still, you know, in the aftermath of the destruction of the Second Temple on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're, we have this kind of, I don't know whether you can call it a third commonwealth for real, we don't have a Beit HaMikdash, but we certainly don't relate to, as I sit here in Jerusalem, we don't sit here, we don't relate to Jerusalem as in its destruction, right? Yes, it was destroyed, yes, it, we don't have Mashiach, we don't have a full rebuilding, but this phrase of the Jerusalem in its destruction as a sign of mourning and that we should not drink meat, drink wine and eat meat, um, 
you know, is is a challenge for our current generation. And Shmuel says, this is still going, because he's going back to the previous discussion, right, to say this is if he's, the person is obligated by by another vow, meaning some previous vow that he's already made, that he said that he's going to refrain or abstain from meat and wine on that day. And so now he's just referring back to it. It's not that he's making a vow to do it like that, but he made the vow on the actual day and is referring back to it now. This is really, I would say, the the minutia of the way the vow is going to kick in as obligatory or not. Does it have to be on the day or on a reference to the day, You know, which is good enough or not good enough? The Gemara is going to try to clarify this. Hey, Chidami, love ki going to ka'ai b'chad b'shabbat damit be'avua. The Gemara says, what, what is the circumstances? What's the situation? For example, what if it was Sunday? And Sunday is the same day of the week that the father died. So the says, well, there are plenty of permitted Sundays, right, where one, where one could easily, you know, eat, eat meat and drink wine like normal Sundays. And where, as opposed to it being like the day that his father died, it's an interesting linguistic conundrum to say how much does the time that you're referring to as like you know similar to that other time what has to be similar to it when we talk about a yurt site we're talking about the anniversary literally a year later what if you were talking about every sunday is every sunday like the day that the father died what if it was you know any time that you were in this particular room that that right there's there's a whole lot of ways there are many many ways that you could come up with similarities that like the day that the father died um would apply or or specifically not apply right so what happens here is um asur right the tana teaches that it's prohibited right it's prohibited so that what happens is again shmamina baikar humat peace he we we learn that he has to associate he has to connect that the point of his vow with the original halachic status of that original day and not some later Sunday, right? So his wording has to make that clear because otherwise, and this, I, I don't know exactly at what point you would say it's an oath in vain, at what point you would say it was nothing, it didn't count at all, at what point you would say, well, now he's obligated to do, you know, to take oaths, I mean, to, to do actual fasting on days that, he may not have even intended by virtue of his formulation. I, the Gedalia piece is very interesting. Like of any national, any national tragedy, tragedy to mention here on the top, you know, in connection with this, I, I don't understand exactly why it would be Gedalia. So that's a puzzle I haven't totally figured out. But the idea that sort of there has to be precedent to the Nedar, it can't just be a theoretical but it has to be on based on life experience, particularly in the opinion of Shmuel, is very interesting. Again, this is all about nuance of language. And so what it's, it's part, Shmuel's opinion is essentially saying, if you don't really have that frame of reference because it didn't happen to you before, you didn't make that nedr before, then how can you mean that? Right. It's a very, very strange thing. It, 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 on the one hand, it makes good sense to me that it has to be connected. On the other hand, I feel like it seems to be very extreme in the way it's formulated. So one of the things I'm starting to appreciate about this Masachet is 
it's close attention to detail of all the variations of language. And like, this to me is a great example of like a type of scenario I just wouldn't even have come up with, you know? And I think one thing we need to start exploring a little bit more, we're going to finish the first paragraph tomorrow is what, why did people take these netters to begin with? Like, what was the purpose of making these types of netters? And that, that piece hasn't been, hasn't, isn't so apparent to me. Like, why was this so much a cultural or a thing that sort of happened? That people were taking the derm at all? Yeah. Well, well, that, you know, that when you take a netter, it like prohibited you. Like, that's the piece I just don't totally understand. Why you people know? would wear off. I'll, I'll raise you, right? Why can't you just not eat your meat and drink your wine on the day of that's the yard site of the father? Meaning, why do you have to take a nedger that you're not going to do it? Why can't you right. just not do it in mourning? Yeah. All right. These are, these are things we need to start thinking about as we formulate like what nedgers actually mean. I'm going to move on to a section that primarily appears on Amud Bet. It starts at the bottom of Amud Aleph. There's a whole discussion here about uh, that starts actually on Yud Aleph Amud Bet from Rami Barhama, who brought up that issue about a shlemin. In other words, if you make a neder over something that it sometimes is prohibited, but eventually becomes permitted, is that considered to be a valid neder? That's sort of like your point of reference for making the neder. And so Ravina says the following, I'm a Ravina, Toshma, right? Let's learn the following from Mishnah. So somebody says that of which I eat of yours should be like Aaron's chala or like Aaron's truma. He's permitted. In other words, he can eat that other person's food because it's a, so the object that's associated with his neder, right, is something that inherently is prohibited. It's not something that you would make a neder over. Right now, the question is, the Mishnah specifies somebody who says Aaron's truma, which is permitted. And so that what that's saying is, but if somebody would say like the truma of the breads of the toda offering, asur, then he actually would be forbidden because in that case, he would be associating it with something that is actually prohibited by a vow. So the So we need to just talk a little bit about what this uh, truma of toda is so the truma of toda is a toda offering is basically it's a it's a it literally means Thanksgiving right which is an animal that you bring with forty breads and the breads are basically divided into four categories um, ten of them are going to be chametz loaves ten of them will be matzah ten of them will be matzah wafers and ten are these like scalded matzah loaves the dough is basically scalded with hot water and then baked and then fried. It sounds delicious if you ask me. Okay. <laughs> so after all the beds are break, baked, so you have 10 of each, one loaf of each of those is basically separated out as truma. Um, uh, one loaf of each is separated out from the truma and it's given to the Kohen. And then the rest of the loaves are eaten by the person who bought the truma and any guests that he wants to, um, that he wants to share it with. Uh, you know, and that's basically what it is. So the four breads that have to be given to the true to the coin are referred to as truma. So again, these are one of these wonderful things that are in the Gemara that like, until I had read this Gemara, like I kind of had heard about the Korban Toda, but I never really understood exactly what it was. And it really gets elucidated here in this Gemara itself. 
So then the Gemara. It also makes it clear, Yerdin, it also makes it clear why we don't say Mizmor Lotoda and Davening on Erev Pesach, because all of that Chametz is right there when you're getting rid of Chametz, right? That is a great point. Yes, that is true, because all that Chametz is there. So then the question is, but the truma of the toda bread is only like sort of only is allowed after the throwing of the blood of the offering. At that point, the truma that was separated out is permitted to the Kohanim. Um, and, uh, you know, and therefore the reason that the neder is sort of associated with the truma of Tolada breads is that the, and that this would be an, uh, an okay neder to make or an okay formulation is that the person making the neder is making an association with the state of the truma breads before the blood of the, you know, of the korban is, is thrown. So what we see is, is that when somebody makes a neder through association, he's actually referring to like sort of the essence of that item. Okay. That's essentially a lot of what they're talking about here. And they're going to go through like different formulations. Are we talking about before the blood? Are we talking about after the blood or things like that? I'm going to skip a little bit now on Amud Bet. Um, and uh, the Gemara basically says, uh, you know, they, they, they want to explain a specific piece about how the truma is separate. One of the things they suggest is that the truma could actually be separated when it's still dough. And so the Gemara then goes through a lengthy explanation of how that would happen. So this is in according to what Rav Tovi Barkisna said in the name of Shmuel. If one baked the toda sort of as, as four large loaves, so you had a large chametz loaf, a large, you know, matzah loaf, a large matzah wafer, and a large scalded matzah loaf, instead of the actual 40 loaves, you know, one, 10 of each kind, yetzah. He actually he he fulfilled his obligation of what he uh, needed of what he needed to do. So in other words, it's saying you could do four large loaves instead of the forty small ones. Um, and then the Gemara wants to say, but didn't it say that it has to be forty? So the Gemara says la mitzvah, right? You need it to 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 fulfill it according to the actual procedure of how it should happen. But if you did it that way, it still would be okay. So. Part one thing that we'll see what the more that we talk about korbanos and things like that is that there can be rules or procedures of how the korban should go, but then there are things that are essential that if it's not done that way, the korban's not considered valid. So this is one of the things that yes, it should be forty loaves, but if it's four large ones, we're still going to 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 accept it. It's not that's not the essential part of how the toda is given. So now the gemara wants to go on again. Okay, and and think a little bit more about what Rub Toby said that the truma could just be separated from these breads. So then it says, "Vahabai lemishkal truma." Okay, but you have to take truma from the bread. How do you do this if each one is only a single loaf? alkula. So if you will say that he takes one whole bread as truma of all four, right? Maybe in other words, he just separates one of the three loaves and one of the four loaves, and he just gives one loaf to the Kohan, to the Kohen, and the other three loaves he keeps. Uh, it says, right, we learn in the Mishnah, and this is a Mishnah in Menachos, uh, it says, Echad Mikol Korban, right, it says he has to take one from each offering of the Truma. Shalom you told me Korban Achaveros. So this teaches that he shouldn't take Truma from one offering 
for another, right? Every, everything needs to be, the, each one of those types of loaves needs to have its own truma. So then say, okay, he takes a piece from each one of the loaves. And again, he quotes another Mishnah here. Echad, right? It says one in that Pasuk. You shouldn't take a piece. In other words, you have to take, uh, it, it should take like an entire loaf. It needs to be one of the smaller loaves, not one of the big ones. So the question is, then how how do you do the truma if you just have these four loaves? Ella, so what's the explanation, right? He separates those trumas out while it's still dough. Okay, so in other words, he would need, he would make the four types of dough and then divide each dough into the 10, in, you know, basically into the 10 individual, uh, you know, loaves, right? So then he could separate truma from taking it of one of the 10 chametz. So one from the matzah ones, one from the wafer ones, and one from the scalded ones. So what we basically see here is that the, the, you, the, the, this grouping of the dough, what you separated out from the dough can be considered the truma and then given to the Kohen. Once he's separated out the loaf of each type, he then can combine, this is how the Mepharshim explaining, he can combine the nine remaining ones and bake it as one single loaf. So it's just very, and this is basically how truma would be taken if you decided to make four large loaves. So again, when you have the dough, you would have to take the dough of each kind, separate it into 10, take the, 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 the dough, the tenth of the dough from each one, the remaining nine pieces of each type of loaf, you would then bake into one particular um, one. So I just thought this was very interesting, sort of like, just the procedure of how this was actually done. We'll learn more about this when we get to Menachot, um, but a, an interesting way for them to present it. And also interesting to see that we do allow with Corbanos that there can be some variation in the procedure. In other words, we have the ideal of how it should happen, and then we have the essential of how it should happen. And here is a place where we see that there can be a little bit of wiggle room. I think that last comment you're doing, I think is very germane to the to the whole thing of the oaths, vows to begin with, right? This ideal versus real. And when you make a vow and when you don't make a vow, and so much of it is to make sure that your reality matches the theoretical, right? Because otherwise you're in trouble. I understand that that's, you weren't really talking about the oaths in this place, in this context, but I'm wondering to what extent the, the Menachot topic is here altogether because of exactly this like greater you know, greater overarching theme. Again, food for thought, not not something, not even speculative, right? Just uh, throwing it out there. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Time and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.